Code Together, a discussion series exploring the possibilities of cross-architecture development with those who live it. I'm your host, Brenda Christopher. Adoption of Python has been enormous over the last decade. According to Slash Data, there are more than 8 million developers globally who code with Python. It's easy to use, versatile, and can be used for AI, machine learning, data analytics, data visualization, and much more. Our first guest today is Travis Oliphant, Quantsite CEO. Travis is also the creator of SciPy, NumPy, and Numba, founder and creator of Anaconda, and founder of NumFocus. Welcome, Travis. Hi, thanks, Brenda. It's great to be here. Next, we have Ralph Gomers, co-director of Quantside Labs. Thanks for joining us today, Ralph. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. And last, we have Arig Malig Adamon, a principal engineer and engineering manager at Intel. Welcome, Arig. Hi, Brenda. Thanks for inviting me. So let's get started. Travis, why is Python becoming the center of the universe for data science? That's a great question. I think the answer lies in some of the reasons why I started to use it, why many of my scientific friends started to use it as well. First, I think those numbers are vastly underestimated. I think it's much more than 8 million. Actually, as the founder of Anaconda, we had a distribution of Python with 25 million users. And Anaconda's distribution of Python. One of the reasons I think it's underestimated is because many of the ways to estimate developers focus on a very particular narrow use of computing. And one use, people that write new programs. There's a lot of people that use computing that actually write script. They think of something else besides programming every day. They think of science. They think of engineering. They think of data. As a scientist myself, I was looking for a way to experiment with MRI images and do rapid development of ideas and algorithms without deep dives into programming. And I found Python. I think other people like that did too. So one of the reasons Python's growing in popularity and continuing to grow is because of its accessibility. It's easy to use. You can understand a little bit of logic and then start to use it and write scripts. So I think that's one big reason why it started to get adoption. And I guess nowadays, the second reason is that there's just so many libraries, basically, you know, for your average data scientist or scientist or engineer, it's very unlikely there's not a library that does pretty much exactly what you need. And that's an advantage that's today even more important than a language, probably. That's a good point. I agree. And if I may add, as I like to say, quote unquote, Python is a language without bones. So it can adapt to any domain and very, very accurately reflect the domain-specific APIs, which is very convenient for users. That's an interesting analogy. <laughs> no bones, <laughs> like it's about to die. <laughs> it does. It makes it sound like that, but it's really about adaptability, right? So that's really a cool analogy. I agree, Ralph. So Travis, can you tell us about what were the problems that we're trying to solve through Python? So there's a lot of problems people solve through Python. It's like it's vast. One of the great privileges of being a part of the open source Python community has been just meeting so many brilliant people doing amazing things, you know, from discovering black holes to gravitational waves to trading and managing risk at the large banks and trying to avoid another meltdown like in 2008 to drug discovery to mixing, you know, figuring out how to make your toothpaste not settle on a shelf. Anywhere science is used, anywhere science has application, Python has application. That's not to mention all the other reasons Python gets used as a programming language, web, IoT systems. But for me, and in the data science space, it was all about 
scientists, people have questions about data, they want to get answers to data, they want to do it quickly. And Python became really popular in that space. So, you know, you have the problem. Python likely has a solution. As, as Ralph mentioned, there's a library out there for it. Many people have joked, actually, you know, there's a joke going around of XKCD. It's a comic that engineers like and a guy flying. And he's like, how'd you get up there? Uh, I imported anti-gravity from Python. It's sort of there's a running joke of how many libraries are available. So a lot of problems can be solved. One of the challenges, though, early on was as people started to write libraries, how do we talk about fundamental data structures? There's two fundamental data structures that have kind of evolved to help people manage large sets of data and do their data management and data processing. One is an ND array structure. It's basically an array of numbers. Think of it as a matrix. And then if you go N-dimensional, three-dimensional, four, five, 20 dimensions, that's an tensor, an N-dimensional array. The other data structure is more like a Excel spreadsheet. If you have an Excel spreadsheet with columns and rows, and you have a bunch of data tabulated, so they call that a data frame. And so there has been two popular libraries that have emerged to handle those. One is NumPy for ND arrays and tensors, and the other Pandas for data frames. That's been kind of the state of the world or was the state of the world. People would come to Python and go, oh, what do I use to do these kind of calculations? Oh, use NumPy. Up until about 2015, 2016, that was something to tell people. But that's not true anymore. We can kind of talk about some of the difficulties that have arisen since then. Now, Arig, we've talked about the large adoption of Python across the industry, and it's an open source language. So can you tell us about why is it popular? What makes it different from other solutions out there? Yeah, as Travis mentioned, there are lots and lots of libraries. As soon as you want to solve some problems, the obvious first and very fast thing to get is to get a Python and add some libraries and go from there. And as computing power gets more and more performant, the complexity and scale of problems being solved also gets bigger and bigger. And apparently at some point, we are not very satisfied with the performance of the libraries, neither we are satisfied with the Python performance itself. So then Python used the C bindings, for example, the libraries like TensorFlow, PyTorch, etc., used C bindings or Cython to accelerate things. And it's working well in some cases, and it's not working well in other cases. And heterogeneity being added, now you can do very, very fast computation, certain types of computations on GPU or on other specific accelerators. Now you have lots of contradicting libraries where to move data, you need to do copying, converting. Libraries are using contradicting or incompatible APIs, and it becomes very confusing for users to just do the thing that they want to do. Quickly compute some mean of the data frame. It's not that easy. And that's when we're discussing with Travis about all these challenges that happened. And we agreed that it's very, very important to kind of align around some standard APIs that can help users to go from one library to another. And the challenge there was, I remember we discussed with uh, Travis, like how not to get to this another XKCD cartoon <laughs> to produce the 15th standard when we already have 14 standards around. 
Right. Exactly. It was a big concern, right? I mean, NumPy actually existed itself in trying to merge two other array standards that arised in 2005, 2004, numeric and numarray. And NumPy, we managed to create an array that several other libraries could develop on top of. Then SciPy, SciKits, lots of libraries started to emerge. We see the same thing happening now in the larger ecosystem, except we have libraries and systems built on top of different array standards, different data frame standards. So you'll have MLflow on top of the Spark ML, or you'll have, you know, PyMC or Pyro. There's a lot of probabilistic computing standards on top of TensorFlow or Torch or NumPy. All of a sudden, you start to see different stacks of scientific development. You know, Rolf, having been a longtime leader and contributor to SciPy, kind of understood the value of a large set of collective libraries that set, sit on top of common standards. And that was very alarming to kind of realize that that collaboration of many often it's the scientists themselves writing the algorithms that they're inventing or creating or know a lot about. And they're trying to figure out, well, what do I build on? Do I build on TensorFlow or PyTorch or, and then the data frame side, do I build on Dix or Dask or Ray or Pandas? All of a sudden there's this enormous complexity. And so, you know, we had the idea with Eric and Intel and then working with Rolf, who has also been thinking about this for several years and with the NumPy community of just really standardizing on APIs. That was kind of how we got this consortium started with Intel, which we're really excited about. So Travis, could you tell us about the Python API Consortium? Yeah, it's the Python Data API Consortium. And the purpose is to really combine everybody who wants to talk about making a common API for array computing and a common API for data frame computing. And it's just gotten started about one and a half years old, thanks to the motivation of Intel and then the sponsorship of others like TensorFlow and Jax and Microsoft and LG Electronics and others. OneSight, we're really excited that this is organized to really help bring people together and solve a fundamental problem. Yeah, it might be worth also pointing out that one of the ways we got here with this, like we have so many libraries that do array data structures and so many that do data frame array structures is because, well, it was more a social problem than a technical problem, right? Really, like when deep learning started becoming popular, you know, people basically wanted NumPy on GPUs without a grad. But rather than, you know, contribute to NumPy or build a library around it, that happened, but you know, then Google came and built TensorFlow, which was like NumPy, but slightly different. And then, you know, there were other companies that, well, you know, we want our own thing. So they built PyTorch and Microsoft built CNTK. And like it went on and on like that. And then we ended up with like seven, eight different things that were more or less the same, but not really. When we started brainstorming, you know, at the end of 2019, how do we deal with this problem? Is that we should avoid writing more code. You know, writing yet another library is very likely not going to be the answer. So rather than do that, we wanted to like first ensure we had the social buy-in. So we talked to maintainers of every single library. It's like, here's our vision for a common standard and do it in a way that doesn't limit like your freedom to write, you know, high performance code with exotic features. And you know, then basically build a standard that they can adopt within their own library. And that, I think, is, you know, the core idea of this whole consortium that we put together. And yeah, Arik was very instrumental in this initial discussion, so maybe he has some thoughts on it as well. Yeah, I think the most important part was the social contract, because technically everything is possible and we can do lots of things, but how to align all the 
participants in the industry to use the common thing. And here you guys were instrumental to bring together all the big participants to start discussing because we never discussed that problem in public. And maybe there were some articles and some talks, but we never sat down and discussed, okay, here is what's happening. Here are the problems and how we're going to solve this. And that was the most important part from my perspective that we sat down in this consortium and start discussing all these problems. And suddenly we found that there are lots of common ground. Of course, there are some disagreements and there will always be disagreements. Things are going slowly as, as any standard committee, but that's fine as long as we are talking and solving problems. And that's what we do. I'm very happy that Array API standard first version is out. When we see that it's being quickly adopted by NumPy, Kupai, TensorFlow, not TensorFlow, sorry, PyTorch is adopting. I don't know whether TensorFlow has any plans, but I hope so. And this is a huge step forward because suddenly you can have the same API working seamlessly from NumPy to PyTorch and back. It's very, very convenient for the users. And the second, we as Intel are always concerned about the performance. And when you have common standards, then you can go and create your magic underneath. And that's what is our main focus. And the same is true for data frames. We fixed and used the first draft for the data frame interchange protocol. It's already a huge deal. And the next step is the APIs. First of all, it will allow to have the common parts standardized for the convenience of users. And also it will allow the library developers like us to put target CPU specific optimizations underneath without disturbing anything on the API level. Yeah, I think this is really important to understand. There's a couple of points to make, I think. One is, as a domain scientist or domain expert first, it really starts to be difficult when you have 15 competing standards. And now instead of you thinking about your high-level problem, and yeah, I want it on a distributed system, and I want the machine to just take care of with the library and the system to take care of where it goes, which set of memory it's stored in, which computers takes care of this computation. I want to think about a high-level array and the reductions and the broadcasting computations that I care about. And then have some system do that. And that was the promise. It was on a single machine. That's kind of what NumPy allowed. And then the data frame side, what's interesting, the data frame has been harder for a couple of reasons. One, the array computing has had a long and rich history. Arrays are concepts in the Fortran, you know, from the 60s and the 70s. And they've in the Python space, they've been since 1994. A lot of discussions about them. They're inheriting from a rich ecosystem from APL to J to MATLAB. Lots of history. And so there's more acceptance of what an array is and what the right functions and what the right concepts are. So then you take data frames and they're still fairly new. They come from S and then R and then Python adopted pandas. But now do I do reduction? Do I have labels on my rows or labels only on the columns? How do I do group buys? You know, what kind of type system do I have? How do I adopt that type? There's a lot more complexity to data frames that there isn't complete agreement about. And so I think that's one of the challenges is you've got to get enough of a commonality so that people can build performing useful libraries with the API. Once you get there, then you can have a really nice, robust ecosystem. And I believe we're actually closer. There's so many people using data frames, and there aren't that many people using data frames who will spend time building the data frames, working on them. I don't know if, Rolf, you have comments on that since you're in the middle of it every day. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, that is hard. And I think the big difference is deep learning puts so much energy behind, you know, array and tensor libraries. And something like that does not exist on the data frame side. But it's also interesting to think about time scales. Like you said, Pandas is from 2008, 2009, right? So it's 12 years old. Rx just said, like, you know, it's going slow with the standardization, which is true. We would like it to go faster, but it's been a year and three months since we like really started putting this thing together, right? And we have a working version and implementation in three libraries now. That's probably going to be released by the end of this year. So end users can have it in their hands. If you think about like a library like Pandas, it's still in many ways immature after 12 years. The other comment I often hear is like, you know, why don't we just take the API as it is and then build like, you know, a compiler to make it faster. We build a delayed evaluation system on it to solve all the problems. That takes at least five years. Like if you look at, you know, we still do not have you know, like a good JIT compiler. Like Numba is the best one, I guess. And it's nine years old by now. And there's still lots of things it cannot do. If you look at the, like, you know, JAX has its own JIT compiler, PyTorch has its own JIT compiler, and they're all full of limitations, you know, <laughs> and there is a ton of effort being spent on them. Yeah, Ralph, you completely correct when I say it's going slow it's not because <laughs> I don't I think it's going really slow I want it to go <laughs> faster because we have like huge experience with the MPI open MP etc so we're kind of with lots of frustration there but I understand that actually we are moving pretty fast and the things that we accomplished for this year and a half is amazing for the first time now we have common APIs in our arrays and common protocol for data frame I think that that's huge achievement. And I'm very, very happy to see it happen. And I'm very kind of anxious to see how fast it can be adopted so we can do other things and give more and more good stuff to, to our users. Yeah, I totally agree. And the proof is in the pudding there, right? Because in the end, it's not the implementation in a NumPy or a PyTorch that matters. It's like when libraries start building on top of it, it's all of a sudden like, you know, parts of SciPy and scikit-learn start to work for GPUs. Like that's when the users really get the benefits. Absolutely. hundred percent. That's what's sometimes hidden and not seen is how much work goes behind the scenes. And, you know, all of us have been in technology long enough to understand that we are building on the shoulders of giants already. You know, and some of the things we take for granted day to day have become because of the efforts of so many years ago. I think it's very exciting just kind of understand the human time scales and the complexity of several hundred projects that are actually now interoperating. I'm really impressed that we've got a, not only a team, but a community engagement and interest that's continuing the conversation. So I really, really appreciate the work Intel has done and Arig you know, personally has done to make this a reality. So you've talked a little bit about the background and the work, the importance of standards that the Python API consortium is working on. Ralph, where do you see things heading in the future? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, we started to think about, you know, what's the next step? Now we have a first array API, we also have like a data frame interchange protocol, which didn't exist before that you can turn any kind of data frame into another kind, like pandas to vex, vex to modin, modin to QDF and so on. So that really needs to mature in the next six to 12 months. Then there will be like a more, you know, complete data frame API that's developer focused. 
is one of the things we realized, like for arrays, developers and end users kind of want the same thing. For data frames, it's not really true. Developers want explicit, predictable APIs, while end users want, you know, things that are a little more magic and kind of just do the right thing, which is not the same thing for data frames. But beyond that, there's lots of wishes, like both up and down in abstraction level. For example, we spend a lot of effort working with the team that builds DLPack, which is kind of a low-level interoperability protocol that also supports like more heterogeneous hardware. And there's lots more that can be done there, for example, in supporting distributed libraries. So right now, we don't have specific concepts for supporting distributed libraries. I think that would be a big topic. Arik, maybe you have other thoughts on that? Yeah, as you mentioned, if we look to these future like three to five years, the ideal thing that we're going there, that having interoperability, compiler capabilities for doing lazy evals and supporting the heterogeneous processing is one of our main focuses because I think that eventually what we are doing here will become kind of standardized APIs and procedures for converged data platform that will allow data scientists to just ingress data, do whatever they want, get results. Space of machine learning and data processing, of course. And this will require lots of support, both on APIs, standard intermediate representations, standardized APIs top-down, and all this stuff that kind of naturally goes into this Data APIs Consortium umbrella. Travis, do you have any addition to this? <laughs> no, I like to see tools that keep enabling the occasional programmer. Like I think, you know, Rolf talked about the difference. And I already began the show by saying people are underestimating the Python users. Like I've heard that for years. And it's, I think, because they're using predictive techniques and approaches for developers. And there's a whole smattering of users of Python that are not traditional developers or experts, domain experts, scientists. And I think ensuring that the things we produce enable that group of people to keep doing their job quickly, efficiently with modern machines. As, as machines are growing, GPUs and distributed machines. So I like, you know, how do we extend this so that library writers can keep writing at a higher and higher level? And then just making that much more accessible. So I like what I'm hearing. I'll be constantly encouraging and pushing on that end for end users. It also, I think, is going to evolve a little, like what kind of people are writing these libraries? Because if you see how it started, it was really like physicists and biomechanical engineers and mathematicians writing these libraries that now everybody uses. And they did a really good job, but they kind of broke a whole bunch of software engineering rules in very fundamental ways. And what you see now is like, hardware is becoming more complex. The stacks of software that people use are much you know, deeper. So there's gotta be more software engineering that happens at the lower layers. And that includes like foundational libraries like NumPy, like SciPy, like QPy that people use every day that have to, you know, obey software engineering principles and become more extensible. And at some point that kind of then makes it easier for higher level libraries. You know, you have NumPy and you have, let's say, SciPy and you have Scikit-Learn, and then you have multiple levels above that, which is really where most scientists spend their time and engineers. Those are the ones that we have to enable to, you know, work with distributed code, with GPU code, etc. In addition to what you said, Ralph, I think that all this work that we're doing and 
all these layers of abstractions, defining and designing should help to derive requirements and drive the language changes itself. Because some of these changes actually should go into the Python itself. And eventually, I think that in maybe five years span, I'm, I'm optimistic, some of these changes can land into the Python. <laughs> I'm less optimistic. <laughs> I, like, I try to keep everything possible outside of Python because, you know, for starters, you have to write a PEP, then you have to wait a year before it's implemented, and then you have to wait three more years before that version where it lands in Python becomes the lowest version that your library supports. So basically, it's a five-year process. So you have to really, really need it in Python for that to be the right plan. Yeah, I agree. I agree with Rob. That's one of the reasons NumPy wasn't pulled into Python from day one, even though that was a motivation to call it the NumPy to get the Python 3 folks. But that policy of Python releases has been established for a long time. It has that cadence and it absolutely can limit. But I do think, Arig, you're right. We got to identify what those key things are. And if we can, get momentum for them. And it really is... Python community, it's got a lot of developers in it, not just the domain experts, the scientists, the people Ralph and I like to hang out with and talk to. It's other people we like to hang out and talk with. They're caring about recursive trees and compiler issues and parsers and stuff that I just, it's not in my mind every day. So we're about out of time. Travis, could you provide some insight on where can developers go to learn more and how can they get involved in the Python consortium? Absolutely. Data-apis.org. Data-apis.org. Or they can DM me at TE Oliphant on Twitter or email me, Travis, at quantsite.com. They can reach out to Rolf and I'll let him give us his contact information. Love to hear from anybody interested in moving this sort of thing forward. We're actively looking for people who want to work on this sort of thing and are eager to hear from folks that want to help. Ralph, do you have any resources for how developers can connect with you? Yes. So first of all, data-apis.org is great, or the GitHub repo, everything's public. You can reach me on Twitter, Ralph Commerce, or email or GitHub. That should be easy to find. Arik, do you have any other resources to add from the Intel side? From Intel side, I think worth to mention that these APIs are being adopted by Intel AI Kit, which is available on Intel. AI side, as Travis mentioned, we're very interested to hear folks who will go try and go to Intel AI and download AI Kit, give us feedback. Great. So, Travis, thank you so much for joining today. Thanks, Brenda. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Ralph. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thank you, Arig. It's a pleasure having you here. Thank you, Brenda. Nice to meet you guys. It was really interesting. Thanks, Arig. Thanks, Ralph. Thank you. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining. Let's continue the conversation at oneapi.com. <laughs>